0: You're listening to World Building for Masochists.
1: And we're wondering why we do this to ourselves.
0: It's probably because we need our own private power trips. <laughs> I'm Rowanna
2: Miller. I'm Alexandra Rowland.
1: I'm Marshall Ryan Morasco And
2: I'm guest star Fonda Lee. And this is episode four. Civilization and you. Very exciting today. We have a guest star on this episode. Yay! Yay! And we would hey, love to be here. If you could tell us a little bit about yourself and your book that just came out Oh, or coming yes. out, or I have my dates all mixed up, and maybe a little bit about your particular world building madness.
0: Yeah, so the book will probably have just come out by the time. This airs of Jade War, which is the second book in the Greenbone Saga and the sequel to Jade City, which came out in late 2017. And I have described the Greenbone Saga as epic urban fantasy gangster family saga. Also uh, called it the Godfather with magic and kung fu. Badass. That is that pretty (laughs) much sums it up. It was a beast to write. The Greenbone Saga... In general, is is a beast. Um, they're long books, and there's a lot of intense world building, and I have a lot of fun with them um, because they are, um, in many ways, a mashup of a lot of things that I really enjoy, including the wuxia genre and mm. kung fu films and gangster stories and epic fantasy.
3: Awesome. I have not had a chance to read them yet, to my eternal agony. Um, but like everyone I know keeps going, like Alex, what are you doing with your life? Like you need to read these books. They're incredible. They're amazing. And I'm like, yes, I know, but I have r- uh, homework for my other
0: podcast. Oh, I know. I, I, I hear you. Especially when you have a podcast, it's like just keeping up with the things you have to read for. Yes, it, it is, yeah. it makes that's the thing. This on the topic of why we do this to ourselves, it's like you you. Start writing because uh, you love books and you love stories, and then you work yourself into a situation where you have no time to consume <laughs> them anymore.
3: <laughs> yes. that, that's a mood. Spot on. <laughs> yep, yep. <laughs>
1: I was gonna say I think I managed to read five books last year, but Jade City was one of them. So, <laughs>
3: <laughs> good <laughs> both
1: life choices.
3: Among the few and the proud.
2: <laughs> I, I feel privileged
0: to have made it into the into the top five. <laughs>
3: uh, so let's talk a little bit more about uh, your world building, Fonda. Um, your world is so well realized. How much of your world building happened before writing, during drafting, revision? Like what? At what point of the process do you do your world building?
0: Yeah, this is actually a great book to talk about for a podcast called World Building for Masochists, because um, <laughs> I have had each of my books that I've published come to me in a different way. So um, my debut came to me as the plot first. I had the storyline in my mind, and my um, other young adult uh, duology came to me as the character first. So the story kind of built out of this character I had in my mind. And uh, Jade City and the Greenbone Saga came to me as the world first. Before I had any characters or any plot, the world and the tone and the aesthetic of the world I want to create was in my mind. I actually came up with the title as the first two words in this creative process. So I have a notebook where I've just written Jade City, and that's it. Oh, awesome! I had this I, a vision that it would be this modern era world, kind of analogous to our late twentieth century, with that sort of very gangster aesthetic, like a roaring twenties or like nineteen fifties, almost sort of vibe. You know, this big, vibrant, seedy metropolis, but it would be more of like an Asian influenced city with, and there would be like flashy cars and guns and knives, and but there would be this wild. Um, you know, martial arts and magic. And so the world and my like idea for the tone I wanted to communicate with it was the first thing. And then everything else was like built from there. I, and I'm sure you guys can relate to that feeling of like you have the spark and it's like the grain of sand and the oyster that just you have to like keep accreting material to it. Yep,
2: <laughs> yep. And it's and it's irritating
0: and painful, yes. That's <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. Um, so the world building process for this book was um, in many ways a like an exercise in like how do I take all these disparate things that I really love and think are super cool and make them work together Mm -hmm. and I think that's the case often with a lot of like world building is that we're all influenced by other things that we've consumed it could be like other books movies we've watched Uh, places we've visited, uh, you know, our own personal experiences growing up or like things we've studied in college or like hobbies we've had. There's just all these things. And the creative process is often like, oh, how do I find connections between seemingly unrelated things? And not just like mash them together artificially, but then like build them from the ground up in a way that makes all of that feel really real and organic as if it was like meant all those things just were together from the very beginning.
3: Yeah. So you mentioned, um, like, influences. You mentioned the uh, wuxia earlier. Uh, what other influences, like, books or, or films have sort of impacted the way that you've done the world building for, for your books?
0: So um, one of the things that I really love in fantasy is when, when the magic feels mundane. Mm. It feels very, like, grounded and just yeah. very normal. Um, so one of the influences for me is, is Neil Gaiman because, you know, he has all this magic stuff going on, but the, the world still feels very kind of contemporary and normal. And, you know, maybe there's gods, but, you know, they're out having a beer with each other <laughs> and it just all feels like very almost matter of fact, like day to day. That was a feel that I wanted to impart in my world. So you never hear um, the characters in the world refer to magic Like, there's this magic jade, and it gives them these superhuman powers that other people in the world don't have, but they don't think of it as magic. It's just this thing in the world that uh, may be mysterious, and we don't exactly know how it works, but, you know, Mm -hmm. there's stuff in our world that's like that. We're like, I don't know how quantum physics works, but, you know, it it exists. So that's how the characters (laughs) in the world think of of the magic in the world. It's just part of their world. They wouldn't consider it, like, really unusual or, uh, you know, something otherworldly.
3: Yeah, of course, because it's just like baked into their day-to-day lives. Right, right. Yeah. So um,
0: that certainly had an influence. And I also really like the blending of kind of science fictional elements and fantasy elements. Mm-hmm. So the Dragon Riders of Pern series was uh, by Anne McCaffrey was a series that influenced me when I was a teen. And I devoured those books and I loved how they had these fantasy elements, dragons and people riding dragons but it was in a science fictional context so you know you realize that oh this is actually like a colonized planet and there's this astronomical reason why there's this deadly stuff falling from the sky so that kind of blend of the fantasy and the science fiction and the sort of blurry border between them is something that I wanted to impart in the world too so there's magic in this world but there's a chapter in there where we see an outside perspective and the foreigners don't think of jade as anything magical they call it bioenergetic jade and it's subject to scientific scrutiny and um, mm. of course people would try to make drugs so that people who can't normally use it can use it and things like that very cool
2: last episode We ended with a chat or a little debate about um, whether our fantasy world that we had just kind of crafted from the void and had some environments that we had plugged into it um, in terms of biomes, if we were going to have just humans or if we were going to include any fantasy races. And we said we were going to chew on that and come back to that question um, for this week's episode. So thoughts.
3: I last episode, I was really leaning towards having like just humans be kind of the dominant species, you know, the the main or only civilization builders on this planet. And I think I'm still there. I think that there is like enough complexity, uh, especially if you are being aware of actual human diversity and actual Um, diversity between cultures, between uh, races, between different parts of the world. Uh, I think that that gives you enough material to work with. And then you don't have to resort to like not talking about those quote unquote icky brown people by talking about like, oh, a fantasy brown people, which we're going to invent different kinds of racism to talk about. And it ends up being like, not very honest and not a very good take anyway. So like, let's just keep it real man let's just keep it real is how i'm sort of (laughs) leaning towards it right now but i will listen to your thoughts as well
1: i lean towards only human as well often when you see people using fantasy races it feels like they're taking previous Mm. things that other people did oftentimes tolkien yeah it feels less like strong world building and more like at best a good cover version that doesn't always end up being the case especially if people do interesting things with fantasy races but I haven't seen a lot of that but more often than not it feels like it's done poorly and that it is just sort of this presumption of I'm gonna have elves and dwarves and orcs because That's what you do.
3: Right. And not really reaching beyond that. Right. It's sort of like another case of uh, choose versus presume, which we always come back to on this podcast because you're just like, oh, I'm just, I'm writing fantasy. So I will just presume what's normal in fantasy. And that's elves, dwarves, orcs, humans, maybe halflings.
1: I had a friend the other day be like, should I do my big elf fantasy? And people were like, if that's what you want to do, you should do it. And what I said was, think about why it needs to be elves. And if there's like a really good compelling reason, then of course, absolutely do that. But that mm. as an active choice rather than that's what it's supposed to be because it's fantasy.
2: Right. Yeah. I think that I had joked last time that... um Marshall had created Fonda, uh, giant sloths as one of the um, megafauna in his particular region of the world, and I had said, "Well, why can't the giant sloths be sentient?" Um, which I think would would create complications <laughs> that we're really not willing to go into right now. Um, but it did kind of make me
3: think about—it's a little complicated for a podcast. <laughs> it,
2: it did kind of make me think about how we usually do like default to, um, you know, bipedal hominid type fantasy races when, you know, there certainly Mm -hmm. are options there for things like giant sloths or, you know, Alex mentioned as well, like, you know, dolphins are very intelligent. Why couldn't you have some kind of marine species that is um, actually an active participant in a sort of civilized inter-civilization world. Um, so that's an interesting, I think, choose and presume that I'm sure people have played with. Um, but I don't know that yeah. we want to. Yeah, so. yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah, I know. I mean, I'm obviously the guest here, but I would I would go back. I, I really strongly agree with what Marshall was saying, which was, you know, what is your reason for having a fantasy race? And I can't even count the number of times that I've done writing workshops and critiqued submissions by aspiring writers who have, uh, you know, defaulted to, well, this is a world with elves and orcs and, uh, you know, fairies or something like that. And if they are just humans with pointy ears, like that's the main difference is that maybe they're more noble and maybe they live for 300 years, those sorts of things. Uh, Then my question to them is always, well, what are you saying or how are you using, you know, elves or... Um, fairies in a way that says something different or, or contributes something new to the conversation um, that hasn't been done before. And if you're, you know, if yes. you're just trying to create different groups of people, um, you know, you, you can do that with different groups of people. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so, right. um, yep. I'm, I'm with you on the, you know, if, if you do have, if part of this world is different fantasy races, um you know what what's the deliberate reason for that and in absence of a deliberate reason um i would i would not do that just for the sake of it because lots of other fantasy novels have done it
2: yeah agreed agreed cool.
0: so we it have sounds like we have we a, have a, a people. consensus
3: here <laughs> our, our <laughs> world has people we have people we have humans <laughs> yes um So we talked the last couple episodes about, uh, environment. We had great fun with biomes last time. Obviously like building civilizations is a huge topic and we can't possibly fit it into one single episode. So we're going to have to do kind of a bird's eye view here. And then in future episodes, I imagine that we're going to break it down and get even more specific on, on certain topics. Um, But I I do want to spend a a minute or two talking about like the impact or interaction between environment and culture, because I came up with this weird theory and you guys can have the opportunity to shoot me down about it. I hypothesize that the very most fundamental baseline of culture, like the place where culture starts, is the choices that a group of people makes about how to interact with their environment. So how do we survive What are we eating? How are we eating? Um, How are we interacting with each other in our communities? Is it easier to survive as a big group or a small group? How do we interact with strangers? How close to other strangers do we live? These are all very basic level questions. Like what choices do we make in this situation that will enable us to survive another week that over time will eventually contribute and build out into a full rich vibrant culture thoughts comments
2: so i think that one thing we had talked about early on with world building was like how far back do you go when you're creating a world Mm. like you go all the way back to the big bang and i would agree with you alex that the interaction between environment and humans is really important and i would think that if if you didn't go back any further than I think you have to go back to that. Like, to me, that's kind of like a point at which you have to have some understanding of this is where it kind of like sprouts from in your world building. At least for me, I kind of feel like I need to have an understanding of that interaction between people and where they are and where they came from where they are too.
3: Yeah, so for example, in a more hostile environment where resources are much more scanty, I imagine that a culture would be inclined well, it would be one or of two extremes. On one extreme, they might be very hostile to outsiders. On the other extreme, they might have a cultural value of if you come across a stranger, you make sure that they're okay and you do whatever you can to take care of them because we're all in this together and we all might die. Um, so you, But there's not a whole lot of room... In the middle right like i think in in those very extreme stressful situations you're gonna um deviate to one of the two ends of the spectrum would you Hmm. agree with that or no
1: now i have to think about these things
3: (laughs) yeah take a moment ponder
1: (laughs) i think you are absolutely spot on that those basic points of of environment and availability of resources are those fundamental building blocks of what will form into the culture. Now, there can be other environmental factors and other random factors that that can give that shape, Um, but for the most part, those are going to be those key building blocks that you use. I have this wild world building fantasy that is utterly implausible that I I constantly think about in terms of pure bottom-up world building, which is the idea to take You know, the sort of thing that we have now where we have our lovely map with our biomes and we, you know, it's going to be populated with people everywhere. And then literally work that from your Neolithic period up through pure hunter gatherers in every area. And some of them are going to become, settle and become more agricultural. And then some of them are going to develop basic metalwork and basic toolcraft and then do the whole process in every little section and build it piece by piece, century by century until you reach the point where you want things to be the point where, t- where we're telling stories. And it's implausible to do because this is hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of man-hours of work. <laughs> but, but the idea of doing it fascinates me. <laughs> that is, that, that's the ultimate of, of world-building masochism. To at least capture a microcosm of that would be very fascinating to do.
3: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's like full on masochist. <laughs> yeah.
0: I, th- I yeah. think maybe the most important thing to keep in mind when it comes to environment and world building is you know, the re- making sure that the um, culture that you're developing makes sense given the physical environment that you're uh, setting this mm-hmm. w- world um, up in. Because, um, you know, you, you wouldn't have medieval european style kind of fantasy culture in uh, you know on a rocky island for example so you know you're you're making choices about the culture but you're you're also having to keep in mind that they have to make sense given the environment and the climate and the resources that those people would have. So like Marshall said, it would be absolutely masochistic to be like, well, let's take this planet and like build it all up from the stone age piece by piece. (laughs) But for me, it's more of a check of like, okay, uh, you know, I'm, I want my fantasy culture to be whatever. And in order for that to make sense, here's the, in the assumptions, here's the, the physical environment that I have to give it to. So, um, For example, I knew that I wanted to have a culture that had a history of being um, really pretty clannish and isolationist, frankly, kind of xenophobic, didn't really have uh, a lot of interaction with the outside world um, prior to us to the modern era. Um, And so um, it made sense that it would be this island that's kind of separated from the mainland. And then that helped me like set the geography and so on. Um, So... You know, I, I think just making sure as writers, we're cognizant of the interplay between the environment and the culture.
2: Yes, absolutely. I absolutely agree on that. Um, one of the other things I think that we had kind of talked about um, being a goal for our mindfulness in creating a world is um, is not being a fucking racist. Yep. Was <laughs> it always comes back to that. And, <laughs> um, and I think that when we start talking about um, kind of the evolution of a society, out of environment and from early age on, it's a spot that can be a pitfall, um, especially because in like really early and not even that early, but in anthropological models that talked about this kind of stuff, it was often like you had this assumption of society becomes more complex along these like rigid boundaries that like you move from a hunter-gatherer society to a herding society, mm-hmm. to an agricultural model, to a city, and that this is somehow an advancement of society. And I think that that's something that um like... I kind of have to like reel myself back and be like no it's not a better than it's not an advancement of it's a you know these are different models of sustaining a culture within an environment and does it make sense within the environment honestly an agrarian society doesn't make sense within a lot of environments right right? hurting society might make more sense so it's not a better than less than more advanced less advanced Mm -hmm. a lot of it is a how is it going to to function and fit
0: yeah i think that's a really good point Because, you know, it, it, I mean, it may, it may be very easy to default to be like, oh, well, like, you know, this, um, you know, uh, family-based, matriarchal, more collective society is more backward than, you know, individualistic, liberal, Western democracy-style culture. And that's, you know, where you, where you're obviously showing your writer bias uh, in your world building. And um, as much as possible, I like to try and, like, get out of my own way when it comes to world building and and character development where it's like you know you you want it to feel like um you're not making you the writer are not imparting moral judgment on the cultures that uh you're creating like you're creating a culture and you're setting a story but like you're not there to be the like the um voice over of like this is good or
2: this is bad (laughs) i really like that um what you said being the moral judge over what you're writing. I like that that mindset of kind of maintaining that neutrality and that kind of unbiased look. I think that's definitely a good challenge to keep in mind. So I think a big choose versus presume moment that a lot of fantasies find themselves at the crossroads of is what... Um, technology level is a society at? what kind of technology does it have? What technological advances have been made haven't been made, um, and how does that then like roll into the world and I think it's a big choose versus presume because a lot of fantasies do default to that European medieval model. And Fonda, Jade City definitely does not do that. I mean, it's a definite choice that it is in this place at this particular level of technology. Can you like talk for a little bit about how that played out in terms of your choosing that technology level?
0: Yeah, no, it was a really deliberate uh, choice moment. And what's funny is that uh, occasionally I will get some random reader who's like, I don't get it. Like, is this, there's cars and there's guns, but no cell phones? Like, oh. okay. <laughs> like obviously they're, they're, you know, millennials born in like <laughs> the year 2000 or something. Because I'm like, I remember a lot of years when there was modern yeah. tech, but no cell phones, but maybe that's because I'm old. So um, yeah, I, I mean, I had a very clear intention as to what time period I wanted to set this and I wanted to evoke this uh, latter half of the 20th century, post-World War II um, time period. And there were a few reasons for that. Um, the first is the tone and the aesthetic that I was going for with the story. So, you know, what what is a gangster story without muscle cars and submachine guns and, you know, a boardroom deals and stuff like that like yeah. I, I needed those things oh, yeah. uh so that that immediately evoked for me i mean if you think about the great gangster films godfather and goodfellas and all those like you 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 imagine you know the men in suits and the dock at night and those those sort of images come to mind so um one was just like a very purely aesthetic uh factor and the other was historical so i wanted this World and the characters in it to be dealing with modern issues of globalization and modernization, and that pull between um, tradition and progress and modernity, um, and how this culture was um, finding itself challenged by outside influence by scientific advancement, like this drug being made that now allowed other people to use this magic. And so um, that really correlated for me with a time period in like po- our world, post-World War mm. II, when um, the uh, Asian countries um, coming out of World War II, Taiwan, Singapore, Korea, were really seeing this miraculous, Economic growth, and that was when you know the time of the of the Asian Tigers, and you know Japan really kind of rebuilding after World War II. So um, that made a lot of sense for me to kind of peg it to that time period and that cultural uh, touch point. And that was also um, a period of time that saw a rise of um, of organized crime groups. So you know we think of the heyday of the Five Families of New York, you know, being like in that that 1950s period of like post-war um, rebuilding and growth and, you know, the Roaring Twenties and Prohibition and so that. So whenever there's like this period of just really um, economic growth and vibrancy, that's also a period of opportunity for organized crime. And even though the clans in the Green Saga aren't organized crime groups per se, I drew a lot of inspiration just from the structure and the culture. Um, so that that made sense like contextually mm-hmm. with the and I talked about, you know, mashing all these different influences. So for a number of reasons um that time period made a lot of sense. Um and you know, it was one of those choices that like as a writer you know is right but you worry about because you don't you don't know how it's going to go down. And you know, I knew people would be like, "Well, is it urban fantasy or is it epic?" Fantasy? And I'm like, "Well, it's a secondary world, so you know, it's not really like urban fit. So I still, and I still get those things that we talk about this, this, um, choice versus presumption dichotomy. The benefit, even though I would never say, you know, go with just presume instead of choosing, I think everything should be an active choice on the part of the author. But, um, the problem is readers will sometimes presume so even as an author, when you're making deliberate choices, you have to keep in mind that your readers might just presume. They might pick up a fantasy novel and expect it to be, you know, a s- certain time period. Or um, they might be surprised that their, their presumptions aren't there. And sometimes they will be delightfully surprised and they will <laughs> love your book and continue reading. And sometimes they'll be confused and ask you, you know, you know well, why is there magic but also cars?
2: I I absolutely get that. I actually call that um, the authenticity fallacy sometimes that um, readers have like an understanding of what they think is historical or what they think is right in fantasy. And often it's either it's not accurate for your world because it's fantasy and it's made up so you can do whatever you really want to um, or it's not even actually historical. Um, like when I was first drafting Torn, I actually ended up cutting out quite a bit of stuff about like early use of steam engines because it was totally, you know, for like late 18th century, early 19th century, these things are being developed, but I was like, I got early reads on it and people were kind of like, it's throwing me. And I'm like, okay, I, you know, it's not worth it to have this particular nifty world building thing in there. If it's truly throwing a reader so much that, you know, they're, they're getting knocked out of the story, even though it's historically (laughs) accurate, but. I can I can let it go, mostly. But you know what's funny
0: is that as you get closer to ma- to current day in terms of the time period that you're choosing, readers have more uh, knowledge, and so they're they get a little bit weirdly picky about like, is this more like 1930s or is this more like 1980s? And my and it's somewhat ironic and funny to me because when you read an epic fantasy novel that's set in the medieval era most people are not like well you know was they're, they're generally like was this like 13th century or fourteenth? <laughs> like is like, you know, like well I think this is actually you know like was this before crossbow or after crossbow and like you know this type of horseshoe is like not really around before the invention of the crossbow like somehow when you go fur- far enough back in time you actually have to sort of vague medieval era readers just sort of accept vague medieval era but if you get to like you know uh flintlock fantasy you're going to get the readers who are who are going to really jump down your throat over you know when different types of rifles were invented and stuff like that
1: did you have the guns people come after you for for the guns in jade city or did they not pick on you too much for the kinds of guns you used?
0: I mean, I, they have not. So knock on wood. <laughs> um, but I, I mean, for I didn't. Uh, I a lot of the guns or the gun brands. Fortunately, what I did because I have a secondary world is I just made up st- all like the types of guns. So I, you know, it's a submachine gun, but I have a Fullerton submachine gun, which is a totally made-up brand. And I have all these cars, but they're made-up mm. cars that just sound like real cars um so um
1: that was one of my favorite things that you did in terms of the world building because it felt very like i don't know what this kind of car is but i know what it seems like yeah exactly yeah was yeah, yeah, what i, I wanted to go for where right? i was
0: like <laughs> It's like I don't know what that car is, but I can picture it because <laughs> like it sounds like this type of car.
3: <laughs> it's amazing. So uh, here in the dot points, uh, Marshall has added Marshall's hypothesis, which sounds very interesting and sciency. Would you like to talk about that to us a little bit, Marshall Ryan mureska
1: About my hypothesis on magic Your and hypothesis. technology and the interaction thereof. Yeah. Okay, so yes. I, I sort of built this on the fact that so many fantasies just sort of use that sort of generic medieval period or shy away from getting to gunpowder that we've been seeing more and more with flintlock fantasy being a thing but my, my thesis was that the existence of magic the more powerful and more ubiquitous that magic is in the world the slower technology advances but at the same time societal advancements will advance much faster. So, for example, if you've got the magical ability to make perfect copies of books, nobody's going to invent the printing press because why do you need a printing press? But then if you have this, then more books are going to be available in general to more people. So literacy is going to be improving over the course of time much faster. This
3: weekend. A very cool fact about literacy and books and stuff, um, which... No, I won't keep it for the trivia question or a trivia point at the end of the episode. I'll just tell you now. So I made a new friend at ReaderCon and uh, he uh, studies like Icelandic manuscripts. And he was telling me that in the 11th century, Iceland had a 97% literacy rate because they had like nothing survives in Iceland. Everything just dies young. So they had loads of dead cows. So they had loads of extra parchment. So they made loads of extra manuscripts. And also in the winter, nobody had shit to do except sit around and read. Cause it's dark all the time. Uh, so they would have just like a family book and pass it around. And um, that's how they developed this deeply uh, literate and literacy oriented culture that extends to this day. Uh, and that's what I learned this weekend. <laughs>
1: But see, there's a perfect example of environmental factors and the factors of resources available yes. contributing to elements of the society right there. Because there's nothing better to do in the winter but sit around and read, they yep. became a yep. reading society.
3: It's pretty nifty. Um, I love it.
2: Okay, so I have a yeah. question for you guys. Um, I really enjoyed how Fonda was sharing that like, kind of the aesthetic in many ways of the world kind of came first in this field that she wanted to like convey. What big picture culture thing did you guys gravitate toward first? Like, what did you have to nail down Alex Rowland and Marshall Ryan Mareska?
3: Um, So for me, it wasn't so much a culture thing. When I was, I sat down to come up with the world. I was kind of keeping a blank slate on culture. Um, but I knew that I wanted uh, megafauna. Uh, which that was a a thing that I kind of discarded a little bit, um, though not entirely. And I wanted uh, bioluminescent plants, which is something that I definitely kept. Um, And then after that, I sort of took each culture as I got to it. Uh, So for the main culture of my first book, uh, A Conspiracy of Truths, uh, that culture is called Nuryavet. And it's sort of based on... Russia, but not really more like Eastern Russia, where it starts interacting with um, Northern Asia. Uh, So you have a very cold and inhospitable environment and you have um, very barren, not very uh, sustaining soil. So you don't have a lot of really good agriculture. They do have a lot of mining opportunities though. Uh, and so that affected the sort of buildings that they build, the sort of agriculture that they do or don't practice, uh, the sort of livestock that they keep, et cetera. Did that answer your question? Yes.
1: One of the things I started <laughs> to gravitate towards when I was having this sort of technology and authenticity fallacy questions plaguing me as I was working on things, I wanted to get away from that traditional fantasy, renaissance Europe sort of thing and I didn't want to go all the way to, like, full steampunk. So I have been settled in this place of where a society is as it's going to be steampunk mm, in, yeah. say, 50, like 75 years. But also that sort of strange, painful transition into the Industrial Revolution. I do this weird thing where I compare it to, to Mad Men. I don't know which of you have watched the entire series of Mad Men. But, no. <laughs> but it covers, you know these characters from 1960 to 1970 which was a period of great huge societal change where many people were very uncomfortable with the way society changed over those 10 years where changes for how women interact in the workplace and how you know people who aren't white interact in the workplace and all of that is is shown over the course of the show and so I wanted that same sort of sense of a society in the midst of societal change as well as technological change and so this has been this sort of slow running threads i've been putting through each of the books
3: it's interesting because, like i think that i tend to do mostly like aesthetics if i'm not doing like okay here is the environment that i want to tell a story and then i do something like here's the aesthetic um, so, for example, in Choir of Lies, I very much started out, here's the aesthetic, because I was like, I just want to write about like fantasy Amsterdam. <laughs> so I'll just like take fantasy Amsterdam and plunk. we'll just do that. Um, and that was also very intentional because it's a story about fantasy tulip mania. And I very much wanted to draw direct parallels between where the Dutch were during their the sort of height of their golden age that made it possible for... Uh, this economic bubble to happen. And so I just sort of modeled it as closely as possible on, well, not really as closely as possible, but very much on the real world situation, what was going on, the fact that they had tons and tons of spare cash uh, to spend on luxuries, the fact that 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 spare cash came from uh, very successful merchant ventures uh, which meant that that came from uh, they had good ships and uh, a strong economy, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah,
0: I love fantasy worlds that deal really explicitly with change and with uh, out of civilizations coming into contact with each other and the and social frictions and um, you know all this. The things that we see in our world. Sometimes you read fantasy, I think especially sometimes with high fantasy and sword and sorcery fantasy, where it feels like the world has always been that way. And, you know, the magic is, is you know, ancient and kind of unknowable, or it's um, determined by destiny or birthright. And, you know, there's the dark lord or something like that. And, you know, the heroes. But it, there's this sort of sense that it is these ancient lineages, but that... The world has, has been that way for a very long time. And and I think it gives, and you, that can be a deliberate choice. It can feel kind of fairytale-ish if you do it that way, um, mm. if, if that's the world that you're wanting to create. But I really gravitate toward reading and creating worlds that feel like they have a history, but that they're also going somewhere. And, um, and that's honestly Mm -hmm. the appeal of, for me, of a lot of science fiction is this, this like extrapolation into like, oh, what's going to happen, you know, because of technological change. But I think that fantasy um, can deal with that too, and is in fact richer and a lot more fun when it, when it does deal with that of like, oh, how is, how is change affecting this society?
3: I completely agree. Like, there are so many fantasy books where you look at them and you're like, I can't imagine in 500 years that these people would be anywhere but exactly where they are right now. They're certainly not going to have a space program by that point. Um, And I think that that is something that is super, super cool to interrogate and to uh, sort of explore. uh, And that's something that I definitely want to do in my own work.
1: So many fantasy worlds I've seen where it feels like the borders were drawn 5,000 years ago and haven't changed since. And, you know, some king died 800 years ago right. and we're all right. waiting right. for yeah. have his changed. line to come yep. back. The next and king. we have a right. interim <laughs> government
2: for <Yeah>. 800 years. <laughs> 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 right. Yeah. Yep. Yep. I think that that's a really good point. There's like a, uh, I think there's even, I forget what it's called, if it even has a name, but a kind of literature theory about, like, there's a difference between books that end with looking ahead to change and books that have a more static worldview of going back and like that kind of like regression or going back, like that says something different about, um, or at least it can, if you're going to Mm. write a thesis about this, um, it can say something different about what the author is trying to say with the book is this you know what is this reflecting about their view on the rest of the world the actual real world that we live in that they project onto a fantasy world does it change and move forward and progress or is it looking backward into something um, that has once been and is now and ever shall be world yeah. without end um So we have talked about like super deep stuff and I am really curious and these are I'm sure things that we are going to get into in far more detail but what are some of the things that um, elements of culture that maybe we don't think about as much or get kind of neglected that you think are really fun? So I have to put sports out there. Agree. Because
0: um, my debut was a story about a fictional sport and sports figure into my fantasy world and um, I think that they don't show up as uh, as much as you would think, considering what a large role they play in our society. I mean, you you know, go to the office on Monday morning, and there's people standing around the water cooler talking about the big game. The amount of time I spend shepherding my children to sporting events, and <laughs> the, the, like you know, they're and I'm, and I'm speaking as someone who's not you know a huge. Um, you know, sports fan or person myself, but I've certainly worked in the industry, and um, you know how much sports are tied to tribal allegiances, mm-hmm. and you know how we spend our time. And um, I, I think that uh, that a fantasy world feel without sports seems a little uh, like, what are they doing They're, You know, what are, what are they doing for athletic um, entertainment and pursuit? Uh, so that's one area. <laughs> And, um, and then, uh, religion is another. Um, and I, th- I think that like, uh, y- you know, uh, not just religion, but like kind of the diversity of religion mm-hmm. and philosophy. Because, yeah. And philosophy. I, I think, uh, even if that's not a major, I'm sure you're going to have some fantasy novels where there's like living gods and things like that. Um, but even in a fantasy world where you're not taking a stance on, you know, the existence of gods, what is the religion of, of, their culture? What does that say about them? Um, how did they develop that religion? Uh, and how do they feel about people of other religions? Are they, are they evangelical? Do they want to conquer those people? Do they think they're heretics? Do they, you know, very tolerant? So I think all those things, um, are, are worth thinking about, um, and then uh, the last suggestion I had there was food. Uh, food, food says so yes. much about the culture. I mean, so much of our social interaction takes place over food. All of our, you know, family gatherings and holidays. And food is always part of, of life. Big fan of food. So, uh, you know, I'm always, I'm always careful. And Best actually, food. This, is, this gets back to that, that ongoing theme of uh, choice versus presumption. So um, when I was writing Jade City, I didn't want it to be any one place. Like I, I was very careful that this is not fantasy Japan or fantasy Hong Kong or fantasy China or Korea. It, I wanted it to be its own thing. It's clearly an East Asian sort of fantasy world. Um, but I didn't want to use the word sushi anywhere or mm. adobo or ramen right? So th- that, I was very careful mm-hmm. about that because I wanted the food and what I would, I spent, I would have times when I was writing a scene and I'd be like Googling, you know, um, Asian hol- holiday foods and like just pulling up images and images, right? Because, you know, I wanted to, to, <laughs> to make sure that the food that I described felt like it fit the, 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 the setting. So like every Asian culture has some sort of, filled dumpling-like thing, like right? They're all, they all, we all have noodles, like, you know, so I could describe a meal as having, you know, noodles and garlic sauce, because noodles and garlic sauce could be like one of however many different, yeah. you know, Asian dishes, but I wasn't gonna use, you know, udon or, so um, So that was that's another sort of choice versus presumption thing where it's yeah. like, oh, if how you're describing food is going to say a lot about how specific you're tying your, how specifically you're tying your story to like a real world culture in our own world versus like making up something new and different. And like, what cultural cues are you giving to ground your reader? And like, do you, do you want it to be really narrowed down or do you want it to be something a little more open or different?
1: One of my weird influences as, as a world building source, material, I have a, a cookbook that's called Country Cooking of France. And it has this whole bit where it talks about how each individual region of France has its very specific, what's called terroir, uh, though my French is terrible, so I'm surely mangling that word. And what that means is each little region has their very specific set of herbs and vegetables and combinations that mean that region so i made the regional map of the nation and been like okay what are these very specific little details of food what then becomes the regional traditional dish of each region that became a fun way for me to define aspects of the subcultures within the main culture
3: yeah uh, I had a point going back to um, one of the very first things that uh, Fonda talked about in this this sec- section. I would love to see more pop culture and fantasy. Uh, what are they sitting around and doing of an evening? Like, they're not just twiddling their thumbs. Uh, what songs are they sharing? Uh, what is the new cool play that everybody is talking about? Like, like what, especially if they're living in a city, there's going to be so many... Um, amazing, fresh forms of entertainment. And that's what you talk to your friends about, right? Like, oh, have you seen that new ma- uh, street magician uh, down at the the marketplace? Like, he's an asshole. We hate the way that he does magic. Um, that sort of thing, right? Uh, right, right. And yeah. I don't really see a whole lot of, you know, people having conversations about the sort of pop culture things that they're interacting with uh, in their day-to-day lives. And I would love to see more of that.
0: And, like, music and fashion yeah. is, yeah. you know, part of that, too. Um, you know, the, that's... Even... in It's not like you have to go off and, you know, have a page-long digression. But to the extent that they're, like, it's worked into the fabric of the story. Mm-hmm. Like, the two characters are having a conversation and... This sports game is playing on the background or, you know, this comedy show is going on, you know, or whatever it is, you know, you can you can drop in those nuggets that just make that world feel more real because they're the things that are surround us. Yeah.
3: Or just like a a line about like, oh, you're wearing that new Fashion. I think it looks dumb. You should not. You should not wear that. Uh, like that's all you need. It's two. It's two sentences, and that says so much about both the characters and the world.
1: Or that somebody is wearing something that. Like, oh, that jacket is like 10 years out of fashion. I love throwing in little details like that. Mm-hmm. I love coming up with weird yep. sports to put into the world. I even have an, an appendix in Impostors of Aventil that explains the rules of the main sports game that occurs in that book. Because if you're not writing <laughs> appendixes, then how much of a world-building masochist are you? <laughs>
3: <laughs> Honestly.
2: But well, I think a lot of these things too, like, you know... It's, they're fun and they're great ways to reveal character, but um, they also reveal that your world isn't existing like in a bubble because where are these Mm -hmm. things coming from? Where did this new fashion come from? Did it crop up out of the city you're living in or is it an import from somewhere else? Is it the hot new fabric that all of a sudden that you can get because some trade embargo Mm -hmm. got lifted? Are you all reading something that someone wrote locally or is it in translation? Um, So I think it can be a fun way of like pushing the borders of your world out a little bit to even show glimpses of places characters might not ever go but that the world isn't like dome yeah. world. The other thing I think that's worth yeah.
0: keeping in mind is like for as long as there's there's been humans, there's been trade and commerce of some sort. Yes, 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 so, yes. So um, there's a moment in the television series Rome, which I don't know if you guys have seen, but it's one of my favorite TV shows. Yes. So there's a crier who's like standing in the square, who's like yelling the news about Julius Caesar's latest military conquest. At the end, he's like, visit Whatever bakery on this street for baking good Roman <laughs> bread for good Romans. Like he adds in the commercial, like at the end. <laughs>
3: That's incredible. <laughs> so it's, like,
0: it's just this moment where I'm like, yeah, you know, like people have been subjected to advertising at all yes. times. So, um, you know, little moments <laughs> like that where you're, where you're like, yeah, I totally relate because, you know, I was watching a YouTube video and this ad showed up unannounced. Like yeah, you know, yep. I, I relate to that dude in the square well, listening to like, the town crier telling him to go buy this brand of bread.
2: And like three hundred years ago, you look at newspapers and like they're half advertisements. Right. Like three hundred years ago. Right. All advertisements go to this merchant. They have these ribbons. You know, you want one, and you're like, right. oh, I do want yeah. <laughs> and you know, oh. one thing I I think too in terms of. Um, culture that I, I just it doesn't have to be kitschy but that I almost want to see more of is like more smut yeah humans create yes. so much yes. smut like you look at the books that were published in like 18th century England which is like kind of my favorite little spot there is so much smut yes and you can just imagine you know like Alex was saying what are people doing with their spare time they're getting together and they're like reading smut yes right because it's
3: fun I'm so passionate about this <laughs> yes it's like oh, where yes. are
1: they getting their
0: pornography I mean so much advancement in technology <laughs> is really driven by porn yes
1: once we invent yes. something we're like now how can we have sex using this new thing
3: i think that is a fantastic place to end the episode because we have come up on our hour fonda thank you so much for joining us this was an
0: unmitigated delight it was you know when you guys said that you were doing a podcast called world building for masochists i was like that sounds like a support group program that I would be a part of. <laughs> yep, yep. <laughs> well, welcome to our
2: support group, Fonda. <laughs> I'm glad to be here.
3: Hi, you. Thanks for listening to this episode of World Building for Masochists and letting us help you overcomplicate your writing life. We were so excited to get to sit down with Fonda Lee this episode, and we were really blown away by her amazing insights. Uh, If you agree, definitely go buy her books. The first one, as we mentioned, is Jade City. I cannot wait to get to that myself. Uh, It's on my TBR pile right now. Everybody keeps telling me that it is amazing. So you should read it. Uh, probably before I do, and be also one of the people telling me how amazing it is. Uh, Anyway, our next episode goes up on August 7th. Since we didn't get to do any hands-on world building this episode, we'll be expanding our fantasy world and coming up with some of the cultures that live in Rowena's archipelago, my desert, and Marshall's land of giant sloths. I'm really excited to see what the other two come up with, and we're going to try to find a way to make that you know, fun to listen to, rather than three nerds drone about their boring fantasy bullshit for 20 minutes each, cause that does not sound like a good time. Anyway, we really hope that you liked this episode. If you did, please do take a minute to tell a friend, shout about us on the internet, or leave a review somewhere. If you've got questions or you just want to tell us how cute we are, there's a number of ways to contact us. We're on Twitter and Tumblr as at worldbuildcast, and our email is worldbuildcast at gmail.com. Here's your cool fact of the day. Err, actually, I already gave you your cool fact, didn't I? That thing about the medieval Icelandic literacy rates. Cool, we're good. Hi.